Hi, and welcome to the Soul on Fire Bible Study Podcast. I'm Katie. And I'm Justin. Get ready to let God's consuming flame take hold of your life. Join us as we follow along with the Chapel High School Ministries Sunday Night Bible Study in the Book of John. Each week we'll dive deeper into another chapter and demonstrate how God speaks to us all through His Word. Hi, you lovely people out there. This is Katie. Today, we're going to be going over John chapter 10, which is all about the Good Shepherd. As you know, Justin went over John chapter 9. I'll be going over all of John chapter 10. Let's start at the beginning. Verse 1, I tell you the truth, anyone who sneaks over the wall of a sheepfold rather than going through the gate must surely be a thief and a robber. But the one who enters through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep recognize his voice and come to him. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. After he has gathered his own flock, he walks ahead of them, and they follow him because they know his voice. They won't follow a stranger. They will run from him because they don't know his voice. Those who heard Jesus use this illustration didn't understand what he meant, so he explained it to them. I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the true sheep did not listen to them. Yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. They will come and go freely and will find good pastures. The thief's purpose is to steal kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. A hired hand will run when he sees a wolf coming. He will abandon the sheep because they don't belong to him and he isn't their shepherd. So the wolf attacks them and scatters the flock. The hired hand runs away because he's working only for the money and doesn't care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and they know me just as my father knows me and I know the father. So I sacrifice my life for the sheep. I have other sheep too that are not in this sheepfold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice and there will be one flock with one shepherd. The father loves me because I sacrifice my life so I may take it back. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. For I have the authority to lay it down when I want to, and also to take it up again. For this is what my father commanded. When he said these things, the people were again divided in their opinions about him. Some said, he's demon-possessed and out of his mind. Why listen to a man like that? Others said, this doesn't sound like a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? All right, I just read through verse 21. It's a big section. It all goes together. Let's go back and we'll take it little bits at a time. Starting with verses one through five, where he introduces saying, I tell you the truth, anyone who sneaks over the wall of the sheepfold rather than going through the gate must surely be a thief or a robber. I love the insight that the NIV study Bible had about this passage. It should be understood in light of the Old Testament concept of a shepherd symbolizing a royal caretaker of God's people. God himself was called the shepherd of Israel. A great example is the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
That's just verse one. Or Psalm 80, verse one. Please listen, O shepherd of Israel, who led Joseph's descendants like a flock. It mentions that God gave the leaders of Israel, also called shepherds, great responsibility, but they were later denounced as false shepherds. God promised to provide the true shepherd, the Messiah, to care for the sheep. It appears in references like Ezekiel 34, verse 23, where it says, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. Verse 24, I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. And to understand this passage just a little bit better, the NIV Study Bible mentions that when it's talking about the coming Messiah, you can see it referred to sometimes as David. When you hear that section, you can re-listen even if you like, make sure that you understand that the Messiah was to be a descendant of David and would achieve for Israel what David had, except more fully, so many times... They referred to the Messiah and David synonymously in this type of passage. Another way to view shepherds at this time is just the way that they were at this point in history. As the English Study Version Bible points out, the sheepfold was usually a courtyard near or beside a house, bordered by a stone wall in which one or more families kept their sheep. Sometimes they used caves as well, it mentions. Sheepfolds might have a formal door, like a house has a formal door, and would be guarded at the entrance by a gatekeeper or by the shepherd himself. So now if we look at verse 2, which said, But the one who enters through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. Jesus is going to first lay out this metaphor of the shepherd and the sheep, but then he's going to explain it in more detail. This is just the beginning. Verse 3 says, The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep recognize his voice and come to him. This verse really is packed full if you take it part by part. First of all, who is the gatekeeper? The one who allows the sheep into the sheepfold. This can be interpreted as God the Father. The sheep recognize the shepherd's voice. I think it's pretty obvious here that the sheep are Jesus's followers. So if you're following him and you're listening to this podcast, you are the sheep. Jesus' followers know his voice, it says in this verse, and just like the verse says, they come to him. They are seeking him. They are following him. It mentions that he calls the sheep by name. And on top of that, that he leads them out. Jesus knows his followers as individuals. The NIV commentary says that shepherds do not call out randomly, but only those that belong to them. And the sheep respond to only the voice of the shepherd. People who truly belong to God, listen to, and believe Jesus. I thought that was a great insight. This metaphor is really rich as we're finding. Verse 4 said, After he has gathered his own flock, he walks ahead of them, and they follow him because they know his voice. Okay, so other shepherds might drive sheep or push them from behind, kind of like cattle is driven. But at this time, Palestinian shepherds led their sheep. So when the sheep hear their voice, they allow the shepherd to guide them and they follow the shepherd's voice. Looking at verse 5, they won't follow a stranger. They will run from him because they don't know his voice. They won't follow a stranger. Wow. The question comes to mind, 
How do you know if a person that you are following is leading you astray? Like the stranger trying to lead the sheep astray here. Compare what that person says to what the Bible says. How do you know if the church you're going to is doctrinally sound? Compare what they preach to the Bible. This point was brought up in our small groups, and I thought it was an excellent question, you know, and a really great point. Moving on to verse 6 through 8 here. Those who heard Jesus use this illustration didn't understand what he meant. So he explained it to them. I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the true sheep did not listen to them. When I look at this and I hear the part that says all who came before me, many commentaries refer to the false shepherds or misleading priests and Pharisees. In this context, they were the thieves and robbers that Jesus is referring to. Going back to verse 1, anyone who sneaks over the wall must surely be a thief and a robber. So if God is the gatekeeper, Jesus is the gate, the only way to get to God is through the gate. Then the thieves and robbers who are trying to get to God another way are also trying to mislead the sheep. It says the true sheep do not listen to them. Moving on to verse 9. Yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. They will come and go freely and will find good pastures. He states that he is the way of salvation here. Good pastures can refer to provision for his people. Come and go freely. Some commentaries tie in some references to the Old Testament. Example, we're going to read Psalm 121 verse 8. And Psalm 121 altogether is only eight verses long. And this is the last one. The Lord keeps watch over you as you come and go, both now and forever. Then another example is in Numbers chapter 27, and I'm going to read 15 through 17. Then Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, you are the God who gives breath to all creatures. Please appoint a new man as leader for the community. Give them someone who will guide them wherever they go and will lead them into battle. So the community of the Lord will not be like sheep without a shepherd. Some commentaries believe that this part means inside there is safety and one is able to go out and find pasture or the supply of all needs. There's an NLT footnote that says, or will find safety. When I personally hear that part, It makes me think that throughout my life, I'm going to come and go. I'll be in multiple different places, but no matter what, I have the safety, security, and provision of the shepherd, which is really important because we'll be on the mountain at times, we'll be in the valley at times, highs and lows, but the shepherd is consistent. He's not leaving even though we're going through different things, going to different places in our life. Verse 10 here is very poignant to me. It says, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. When I read this verse, I hold up a mirror to what we just read a few chapters back in chapter 8. In chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and non-believers. 
For you are the children of your father, the devil, and you love to do the evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. Then the verse goes on. But if I look back here at verse 10, I read here and I see a parallel. Satan's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. So naturally, a follower of Satan will be doing the same. Even though this passage here is a comparison between Jesus as a shepherd and false shepherds like the Pharisees, it's a perfect example. He's already said they are following their father. They think they're following God, but they are definitely not. In verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. This is the first time in this passage that Jesus mentions sacrificing his life for the sheep. In the Old Testament, God is mentioned as the true shepherd. A great example, the famous Psalm 23, which we mentioned earlier. In the King James Version, it reads, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. So he's definitely referred to as a shepherd here. David and Moses are actually also depicted as good shepherds, if we read back. Jesus is the good shepherd, though. It's interesting because David was an actual physical shepherd. He was tending to sheep before he was anointed. But if we move on here, starting at verse 12, a hired hand will run when he sees a wolf coming. He will abandon the sheep because they don't belong to him and he isn't their shepherd. And so the wolf attacks them and scatters the flock. Verse 13, the hired hand runs away because he is working only for the money and doesn't really care about the sheep. The hired hand is working for money. He doesn't care for the sheep. That is the part that stands out the most to me right there. Moving on to verse 14 and 15. I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me just as my father knows me and I know the father. So I sacrifice my life for the sheep. Verse 15, this is the second time he mentions that he's going to sacrifice his life for the sheep. Anytime you see something mentioned multiple times, you can take note that is probably pretty important. Verse 16, it says, I have other sheep too that are not in this sheepfold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice and there will be one flock with one shepherd. This is so cool. Many times we've seen Jesus has performed miracles, signs and wonders. This is a great example of divine knowledge. In the future, Jesus knows that salvation will not only be offered to the Jewish nation, but also to the Gentiles, basically people who are not of the Jewish descent. So I had in my notes here, this is a reference to the Gentiles who will be offered the same inheritance as the Jews. One flock, one shepherd is an idea that can point back to Ezekiel chapters 34 and 37, which we keep referring back to, so I'm not going to go and read it again over the past couple chapters here. But there's a good deal of prophecy here, and that's why we keep going back. So if you're curious about it, go back and read it yourself. I also mentioned it's a bit confusing, so maybe start at the beginning. Verse 17, the father loves me because I sacrificed my life so I may take it back again. 
third time he mentions he's going to sacrifice his life. He knows this is going to happen in the future. This is not just his plan. He has divine knowledge that this is what's going to happen. This is the whole reason he's here. This is God's plan. When he says, take it back up again, he will voluntarily give his life and his own divine nature will enable him to rise from the dead, which is just crazy. It's awesome. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily for I have the authority to lay it down when I want to and also to take it up again for this is what my father commanded. He's still referencing giving up his life. This is the fourth verse. In chapter eight, we referred to this part specifically because Jesus spells out here that he will sacrifice himself voluntarily. No one can make it happen sooner than he will allow. We're going to continually see, we've already seen it so many times, that the Pharisees or the people try to kill him or, you know, they send the temple guards after him. But he specifically says here that he will sacrifice himself voluntarily. So this is going to keep coming up. As we near the end of this section about the Good Shepherd and about this metaphor, let's ask ourselves, how can I apply this information to my life right now? There's going to be some content on our podcast list that you can get a little extra deep dive into the application part. But just as a synopsis here, we can look at our own lives and ask, who are the good influencers? Who are the good shepherds in our life? And who are the bad shepherds or the false shepherds or the ones that would love to lead us astray? Because who we allow to lead us can influence the way we make decisions about our everyday life. When we live in a day and age where everything from our friends, marketing agencies, media, movies, influencers on Instagram, TikTok, all that stuff, when they're trying to tell us what to buy, what to wear, how to think and how to feel, we have to be cautious about what we let into our minds. Because like a toxin, those thoughts can poison us and our decision making. So if you get a chance, pray about this. Pray about the things that maybe are subconsciously influencing you that you don't even know about or the things that you know are negative influences on your life. In this chapter, Jesus mentions the thieves and the robbers. And a very interesting footnote said, thieves sneak in, robbers break in. We have to remember that the thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy, like it mentioned in verse 10. Verse 10. He's going to try to wiggle those thoughts into your mind one way or another. But if you're allowing it to happen, it's going to be a lot harder to fight those influences, fight that poor decision making, fight those thoughts, fight those feelings. So that is some good practical application for this section. Moving on to verse 19 through 21, we're finishing up this little part here. When he said these things, the people were again divided in their opinions about him. Some said, he's demon possessed and out of his mind. Why listen to a man like that? Others said, this man doesn't sound like a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is an awesome reference to the last chapter. He just opened the eyes of the blind. And when I read this, the last line where it says, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? I think... 
finally some common sense out of these people. Now you're getting it, honey bun. (laughs) I just, I think these people, they don't understand. They pick up stones to throw him. They think he is blasphemous. And then you finally get to hear some dialogue of people saying, this sounds more like the everyday person. I would, if I was alive at this time, likely be asking myself, does the evidence match up with his claims? And the answer to that question is yes. Just like it talked about how the sheep won't follow a false shepherd, true sheep will hear the shepherd's voice. As an adult, people will see in their careers that almost everything you do is based on evidence-based practice. Basically, the concept is you're not going to make it a practice unless you have evidence that it works. Same thing here. Analyze information. Be vigilant. Don't just follow any voice you hear, any false shepherd. Check what people say against the Bible. Check this podcast against the Bible. And if something is in disagreement, you know that God's word takes priority. And we try to do that too. We're going to move on to a new section here. And the title for this one is Jesus Claims to be the Son of God. Verse 22, it was now winter and Jesus was in Jerusalem at the time of Hanukkah, the festival of dedication. He was in the temple walking through the section known as Solomon's Colonnade. The people surrounded him and asked, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Hanukkah, if you don't already know, is a celebration of the rededication or the cleansing of the Jewish temple. And according to commentaries and some historical websites, this happened around 165 BC in December. Going back to our story here in John, it makes sense that Jesus would be in Jerusalem because this is a festival. Verse 23. He was in the temple walking through the section known as Solomon's Colonnade. We talked about that, the covered porch. Verse 24, the people surrounded him and asked, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Verse 25, Jesus replied, I have already told you and you don't believe me. The proof is the work I do in my father's name, but you don't believe me because you are not my sheep. Again, he's referring back to the metaphor he just told earlier in the chapter. Verse 27, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me. 29, for my father has given them to me and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the father's hand. Verse 30, the father and I are one. Verse 28, we just read it, says, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me. I love a footnote I found in the King James Version Study Bible. Let me read it for you. This is regarding verse 28, and it says, The security of the believer. The doctrine of eternal security teaches that God is able to complete the good work of eternal life that he has begun in every believer. And that is mentioned in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. The eternal security of the believer is guaranteed by the person and work of God. He is true and just and cannot deny himself. Therefore, anyone who has eternal life has it forever. God promises that no one can ever be separated from his love. And that's mentioned in Romans 
chapter 8, verses 33 through 39. There's a little illustration too. Some argue that this doctrine leads to antimonism, that is, allowing Christians to live in sin. This charge, however, denies the very nature of salvation, which involves union with Christ and death to sin. Talked about in Romans chapter 6. But the extent that a Christian fails to serve God, his reward may be lost, though he will be saved from everlasting wrath. This is mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15. So the application here, the Christian is saved and secured by faith, but in love and gratitude to Christ will seek to faithfully serve him. There's a reference to this in Genesis 15, verse 6. The primary reference is exactly what we're talking about here. John 10, verse 28, and in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 17. What they're talking about here is that when Jesus says in verse 28, that no one can snatch them away from me. Once you become a Christian, nothing, like Jesus says here, can snatch us away from him. But this is not an excuse, like the commentary said, to continue sinning. We went over this in a previous chapter as well, so I won't go as deeply into it. But when we are saved and we have the Holy Spirit, we can't help but be transformed in the same way that we can't perform good works. The only good things we can actually do are done because of Christ in us. So when we have Christ in us, then the works that flow out of us will be good works. It's hard sometimes to comprehend that because in our modern secular view of morality, we're told good work is anything people think is good. It might be a good work in someone's mind to help an old lady cross the street, help someone bag their groceries, in general being selfless. But we know based on the Bible, no one can perform a good work without Christ being in them in the same way that if you have Christ in you, you're not going to want to keep sinning. Now, we know that we won't be sinless, but we'll be blameless like we talked about in chapter 8. And just to back that up with scripture, in the NLT version, if we go into Mark 10, starting at verse 17, as Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 18, why do you call me good? Jesus asked, only God is truly good. And Romans 3, starting in verse 10, as the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. Verse 11, no one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. Verse 12, all have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. This just goes to show there are many examples of how we're told we can't be good without the Holy Spirit without Jesus. I love that it confronts that topic because it says no one can snatch us away from him and we can have security in the spirit, but that doesn't mean that we can just say, woo, we're good to go. And then we can continue sinning. Not how that works. You won't want to continue sinning if you're truly a believer. And as a side note, that doesn't mean you're not still gonna struggle sometimes. You're still definitely gonna be tempted. It's still definitely gonna be hard at times not to sin. 
It's about our heart content and our intentions, which God can see. When I hear the verse, I think, this is one to memorize if you're going through a difficult time. How comforting is it? Nothing can snatch you from the Father's hand once you're his. Love it, love it, love it. Okay, let's go ahead and hit the books again here. We're going to start at verse 31. Once again, the people picked up stones to kill him. Jesus said, At my Father's direction, I have done many good works. For which are you going to stone me? They replied, We're stoning you not for any good work, but for blasphemy. You, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus replied, It is written in your own scriptures that God said to certain leaders of the people, I say you are God's, and you know that the scriptures cannot be altered. So if those people who received God's message were called God's, why do you call it blasphemy when I say I am the son of God? After all, the father set me apart and sent me into the world. Don't believe me unless I carry out my father's work. But if I do his work, believe in the evidence of the miraculous works I have done, even if you don't believe me. Then you will know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Once again, they tried to arrest him, but he got away and left. He went beyond the Jordan River near the place where John was first baptizing and stayed there a while. And many followed him. John didn't perform miraculous signs, they remarked to one another. But everything he said about this man has come true. And many who were there believed in Jesus. I must confess, when I read verses 34, 35, and 36, I was a bit confused, where it says, it is written in your own scriptures that God said to certain leaders of the people, I say you are God's, and you know that the scriptures cannot be altered, so if those people who received God's message were called God's, why do you call it blasphemy when I say I am the son of God? I thought that was confusing, and I wanted to know where did it say that? I'm going to read a little message, a footnote that is in the ESV study Bible. It says, if human judges, which are mentioned in Psalm 82 verses 2 through 4, can in some sense be called gods for their role as representatives of God, this title is certainly much more appropriate for the one who is truly the son of God. Jesus depends on just one word in the Old Testament for this argument, the word gods, and it is a lowercase g, gods, not capital G. Thus, when he says that scriptures cannot be broken, he implies that every single word in scripture is completely true and reliable. His opponents would have to agree with this. I love that last part. His opponents would have to agree with this. If the Pharisees denied that one part of scripture isn't true, then every argument against Jesus would be complete fallacy. And in general, it is, but not for this reason. It's because they're blind to what the scriptures are saying. Let's go ahead and read the first part of Psalm 82 so we can get that context ourselves. Verse 1, God presides over heaven's court. He pronounces judgment on the heavenly beings. 2, and this is in quotation marks. How long will you hand down unjust decisions by favoring the wicked? Verse 3, still in quotation marks. Give justice to the poor 
and the orphan, uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute, rescue the poor and helpless, deliver them from the grasp of evil people. But these oppressors know nothing. They are so ignorant. They wander about in darkness while the whole world is shaken to the core. Here's where it says it in verse 6. I say, you are gods. You are all children of the Most High, but you will die like mere mortals and fall like every other ruler. Verse 8. Rise up, O Lord, and judge the earth for all the nations belong to you. When I hear this, I think the same thing as the commentary says. It appears to be an expression. They were chosen rulers, chosen to govern the people, to represent God. So like when we elect representatives in the United States to represent us in the Senate, in the House of Representatives, and they speak for us, they're ambassadors, These people are the chosen ambassadors, rulers of the people to represent God. And they failed. He is saying that the Pharisees would take part of what scripture says into account, but would still reject Jesus's claim, even though he's more worthy to be called God than even those who were called God in that expression. And I also have to think this. In that scripture in Psalm 82, it wasn't capital G God like our God, it was lowercase g God. And most of the time when you see lowercase g God, it's referring to false gods or idols. And that really feeds into this picture that they're painting in Psalm 82 even more so. They're sitting on a throne basically above the people, not conducting themselves justly like a false god. If we look back at the verse again, In John, verse 35, and you know that the scriptures cannot be altered. So if those people who received God's message were called gods, then verse 36, why do you call it blasphemy when I say I am the son of God? The main takeaway here is not the part about, you know, they were called gods. It's the fact that the Pharisees will ignore parts of scripture and take out bits and pieces that they think fit their agenda. People still do that to this day. They pull out one verse out of context and try to justify their behavior with that one verse. God's whole word needs to be taken in context of his whole word. So as you learn it and you gain more knowledge about who God is, you're better able to do that. Looking at that last part then, so starting at verse 39 when it says, Once again, they tried to arrest him, but he got away and left. Again, not his time yet. Then he went beyond the Jordan River near the place where John was first baptizing and stayed there a while, and many followed him. John didn't perform miraculous signs, they remarked to one another. But everything he said about this man has come true. Remember, John was one of the witnesses that Jesus listed earlier in one of these chapters. Because everything John has said about him is true. He's a great witness. Then the last verse, 42, and many who were there believed in Jesus. Today, this is the end of our chapter. I am not going to go over the W's. Not going to go over them. I am going to read those questions and then let your mind 
fill in the blank. Because just like God speaks to me through scripture and Justin through scripture, he speaks to you through scripture. So ask yourself these questions. You can even pause this podcast if you want so that you can have time to answer or get out a journal and write them down. This whole podcast is to get you thinking about how scripture can apply to your life and finding those things that God has to tell you specifically. So first question, wow, what stood out to me here? What do these verses make you wonder about? What do they make you wonder about Jesus? What do they make you wonder about the Pharisees? What do they make you wonder about the people listening? What do they make you wonder about the good shepherd and the thieves and robbers? Why do you think God included this story for us to read? What does he want us to understand? What's the main point here? Who does this show me that God is? And where can I apply this in my daily life? It has been so awesome to study with you today. I can't wait till Justin and I tackle 11 together. I have much more fun with him than without him. (laughs) So we'll both see you next time. Have a good one, everybody.